Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, my fellow Mysterians. This is Terry from Texas with another new episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. In keeping with the Christmas time, wartime kind of thoughts that I've had over the last few weeks, some mysteries, yes. I wanted to tell you a story about World War II that happened close to Christmas, but it's not really a Christmas story in this case. We in America, at least, all know the, the history of Snoopy in the Peanuts comic strip. Snoopy pretends to be a World War I flying ace whose main opponent is the Red Baron. And in the Halloween Charlie Brown episode, he gets into a fight with the Red Baron, but gets shot down and lands behind enemy lines. Well, Snoopy is a fictional character and fought in World War I in his, in his fictional world. But Charlie Brown was a real person. And it's not the Charlie Brown who has the teacher that goes, wah, 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 wah. It's Charles Brown, who was a second lieutenant in late December of 1943 when this incident occurred. Now, the thing was, Charlie Brown, as a second lieutenant, was untested in battle. His crew were untested in battle. This was their first flight in this B-17 on a bombing mission over Germany. He met a German pilot who was an ace named Franz Stigler, and their encounter happened over Germany on 20th of December, 1943. There had been a successful bomb run on Bremen, and Bremen was a munitions port, made weapons and, and ammunition and all kinds of things. Second Lieutenant Charles, or Charlie Brown, was flying a B-17 Flying Fortress, carrying the name Ye Old Pub. And it was severely damaged by German fighters who jumped them after the raid. They were headed back to England. The plane was shot to pieces. It's a miracle it was still flying. And upon seeing this plane fly over, this Luftwaffe pilot, Franz Stiegler, took to the air in his damaged Messerschmitt and came up on this bomber that he just was amazed that they were able to stay in the air as shot up as it was. 
he exhibited something that in wartime is sometimes looked upon as is cowardice, sometimes looked upon as you're, you're just not in this for the battle, are you? It's called compassion. Second Lieutenant Charles L. Charlie Brown, a farm boy from Weston, West Virginia, in his own words, was a B-17F pilot with the 379th Bombardment Group of the United States Army Air Forces, 8th Air Force, stationed at RAF Kimbleton in England. Franz Stiegler, a former Lufthansa airline pilot from Bavaria, was a veteran Luftwaffe fighter pilot attached to Jagdgeschwader 27. The mission was the Yeo Pub Crew's first mission, and it targeted the Focke Wolf 190 aircraft production facility in Bremen. The men of the 527th Bombardment Squadron were informed in a pre-mission briefing that they might encounter hundreds of German fighters. Bremen was guarded by 250 flak guns. Brown's crew was assigned to fly Purple Heart Corner, which is a spot on the edge of the formation that's considered especially dangerous because the Germans targeted the outside of the formation rather than shooting right up into the middle of them. However, since three bombers had to turn back because of mechanical problems, Brown was told to move up to the front of the formation. In this mission, Ye Old Pub's crew consisted of 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Brown as the pilot, and the aircraft commander, Second Lieutenant Spencer Pinky Luke as co-pilot, Second Lieutenant Al Doc Sadoc, navigator, Second Lieutenant Robert Andy Andrews, bombardier, Sergeant Bertrand Frenchy Colomb, top turret gunner and flight engineer, Sergeant Dick Pecho, radio operator, and I'm sorry if I slaughtered that name, Sergeant Hugh Ecke Eckenrode, tail gunner. Sergeant Lloyd Jennings, left waist gunner. Sergeant Alex Russian Yelisanko, right waist gunner. And Sergeant Sam Blackie Blackford, ball turret gunner. Had to love that place. Brown's B-17 began its 10-minute bomb run at 27,300 feet with an outside air temperature of minus 76 degrees. Before the bomber released its bomb load, accurate flak had shattered the plexiglass nose. It knocked out the number two engine and further damaged the number four engine, which had already had been in questionable condition and had to be throttled back to prevent overspeeding. The damage slowed the bomber, and Brown was unable to remain with his formation and fell back as a straggler, which is a dangerous, dangerous position with nobody else to cover you. It's a position from which he came under sustained, heavy enemy attacks. Brown's straggling B-17 was now attacked by over a dozen enemy fighters, which was a mixture of Messerschmitt BF-109s and Focke-Wulf's FW-190s. They came from JG-11, and they fought for over 10 minutes. Further damage was sustained, including damage to the number 3 engine, which would produce only half power, meaning that this 4-engine bomber had, at best, 40% of its total rated power available. The bomber's internal oxygen, hydraulic, and electrical systems were also damaged, and the bomber lost half of its rudder and its port left-side elevator as well as its nose cone 
and many of the gunner's weapons had jammed, probably as a result of loss of the onboard systems, leading to frozen mechanisms. The ground crew also did not oil the guns correctly. And this left the bomber with only two dorsal turret guns, that's the ones out the side doors, and one of three forward-firing nose guns from 11 available for defense. Most of the crew were wounded. The tail gunner, Eckenrode, had been killed by a direct hit from a cannon shell, while Yelisenko was critically wounded in the leg by shrapnel. Blackford's feet were frozen due to shorted-out heating wires in his uniform. Pecho had been hit in the eye by a cannon shell, and Brown was wounded in his right shoulder. The morphine surrettes on board had frozen, which complicated first aid efforts by the crew, while the radio was destroyed and the bomber's exterior heavily damaged. Miraculously, all but Eckenrode survived. Brown's damaged bomber was spotted by Germans on the ground, including Franz Stiegler, who was then an ace with 27 victories already, and he was refueling and rearming at an airfield when he saw the B-17 fly over. He took off in his Messerschmitt BF-109 G6, which had a 50 caliber Browning machine gun bullet embedded in the radiator, and that risked his engine overheating. He quickly caught up with Brown's plane due to the damage of it. Through the damaged bomber's airframe, he could see the injured and incapacitated crew. To the American pilot's surprise, Stiegler did not open fire on the crippled bomber. Stiegler did a fly around of the plane to check the damage and then flew up by the pilot's window. Stiegler recalled the words of one of his commanding officers from Jagdschwader 27, Gustav Rodel, during his time fighting in North Africa. He said, if I ever see or hear of you shooting at a man in a parachute, I will shoot you myself. Stiegler later commented to me, it was just like they were in a parachute. I saw them and I could not shoot them down. Twice, Stiegler tried to get Brown to land his plane at a German airfield and surrender or divert to nearby neutral Sweden, where he and his crew would receive medical treatment and be interned for the remainder of the war. Brown and the crew of the B-17 didn't understand what Stiegler was trying to mouth and gesture to them and so flew on. Stiegler later told Brown he was trying to get them to fly to Sweden. He then flew near Brown's plane in a formation on the bomber's port side wing, that's on the left, so German anti-aircraft units would not target it. He then escorted the B-17 over the coast until they reached open water. Brown, unsure of Stigler's intentions at the time, ordered his dorsal turret gunner to point at Stigler but not open fire to warn him off. Understanding the message and certain that the bomber was out of German airspace, Stigler departed with a salute. Brown managed to fly the 250 miles across the North Sea and land his plane at RAF Seething, home of a 448 bomb group, and at the post-flight debriefing informed his officers about how a German fighter pilot had let him go. He was told not to repeat this to the rest of the unit so as not to build any positive sentiment about enemy pilots. Brown commented, someone decided you can't be human and be flying in, in a German cockpit. Stigler said nothing of the incident to his commanding officers knowing that a German pilot who spared the enemy in combat risked execution. Brown went on to complete a combat tour. 
Franz Stiegler later served as a Messerschmitt ME-262 jet fighter pilot in Jagdverband 44 until the end of the war. After the war, Brown returned home to West Virginia and went to college, then returned to the newly established U.S. Air Force in 1949, serving until 1965. Later, as a State Department Foreign Service Officer, he made numerous trips to Laos and Vietnam. In 1972, he retired from government service and moved to Miami to become an inventor. Stigler moved to Canada in 1953 and became a successful businessman. In 1986, the retired Lieutenant Colonel Brown was asked to speak at a combat pilot reunion event called A Gathering of the Eagles at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Someone asked him if he had any memorable missions during World War II. He thought for a minute and recalled the story of Stigler's escort and salute. Afterward, Brown decided he should try to find out about the unknown German pilot. After four years of searching vainly for U.S. Army Air Forces, U.S. Air Force, and West German Air Force records that might shed some light on who the other pilot was, Brown had come up with little. He then wrote a letter to a combat pilot association newsletter. A few months later, he received a letter from Stigler, who is now living in Canada. I was the one, it said. When they spoke on the phone, Stigler described his plane, the escort, and the salute, confirming everything that Brown needed to hear to know he was the German fighter pilot involved in the incident. Between 1990 and 2008, Charlie Brown and Franz Stigler became close friends and remain so until their deaths within several months of each other in 2008. There is humanity in war, and that story proves it. This one also proves it. It's also from World War II. A couple of shows back, I told the story, probably one of many to have happened, of the 1914 Christmas truce during the first Christmas of World War I. This time I have a short story of a very localized and pretty intimate version of the truce, but occurring in the Ardennes sector during the vicious all-out attack of the German army called the Battle of the Bulge. This took place during the last Christmas of World War II. In 1944, Franz Vinken was just 12 years old, and he and his mother Elizabeth were moved by his father Hubert to a small cabin in the Ardennes. Hubert, a baker for the German army, had moved them there to be protected from the fighting during the Battle of the Bulge. On Christmas Eve in 1944, Hubert had still not returned, but Elizabeth tried to make the most of their situation. She made a Christmas meal of a few potatoes and a small rooster. Suddenly there was a knock at the door. Three American soldiers were outside. One of them explained that their friend had been shot and asked if they could come inside. Elizabeth agreed and she had them place the injured soldier on a bed. She knew that harboring the enemy was punishable by death, but she was willing to take that risk to help them. The injured soldier had been shot in the leg and had lost a great amount of blood. Elizabeth and Fritz did everything they could to help. Soon, one of the soldiers and Elizabeth realized that they both spoke French, 
He explained to her that they had lost track of their unit and had been walking through the Ardennes for several days. She tried to make the soldiers feel as comfortable as possible. Shortly after that, there was another knock on the door. This time, there were four German soldiers. One of the soldiers said that he had lost their unit and needed a place to stay. Elizabeth agreed to let them in on one condition. They had to accept her guests, the Americans, and leave their guns outside. She then took the guns from the Americans as well. That night, all seven soldiers, along with the Vinkins, sat and had Christmas dinner together. One of the German soldiers looked at the injured American soldier and gave him some first aid. Elizabeth said a prayer, asking for the war to end and for them all to be protected. By the end of the prayer, all of the soldiers had tears in their eyes. Later that night, the soldiers went outside to look at the stars. They each gave thanks in their own way. All of the soldiers slept together that night. The next morning, the German soldiers helped create a makeshift stretcher for the injured American. They also gave the American soldiers directions back to their unit. That same day, Fritz and Elizabeth left with the Germans and were soon reunited with Hubert. Five months later, the war ended. In the early 1960s, Fritz immigrated to the United States. In 1966, his mother Elizabeth passed away. Fritz began searching for the soldiers from that night because of the miraculous and emotional time they had spent together. Eldridge Ward, who worked at a retirement home, recognized Fritz's story as one being told by a 75-year-old resident named Ralph Henry Blank. In 1944, Ralph had been a sergeant serving with the U.S. Army in Belgium. Ralph and Fritz soon spoke on the phone, where Ralph vividly recalled the night in the Ardennes that he had spent with Fritz, Elizabeth, and the other soldiers. He even still had the map and compass that one of the German soldiers gave him. On January 19, 1996, Fritz and Ralph were reunited at Ralph's retirement home in Maryland. The reunion occurred just one day after Ralph and his wife's 50th wedding anniversary. Ralph's daughter-in-law cooked them the same meal that Elizabeth Vinken made back in 1944, chicken soup. Fritz was also reunited with another one of the American soldiers soon afterwards. It's not known if any of the German soldiers were located. However, it is to be noted that the German army had a high casualty rate in the final months of the war, leading Fritz to believe that they may have died in battle. Fritz Vinken eventually passed away on December 8th of 2001, with Ralph Blank passing away on May 21st, 1999. As I've said before, war has many mysteries. John Henry Parr, born in July of 1897, died in August of 1914. If you figure out those dates, the young man was 17 years old. He was an English soldier. He is believed to be the first soldier of the British Empire to fall in action during the First World War. Parr was born in Litchfield Grove, Finchley, now in the London borough of Barnet, but still in the historic county of Middlesex. His father was a milkman. He lived most of his life at 52 Lodge Lane, North Finchley the youngest 
of 11 children of Edward and Alice Parr. Many of his siblings died before their fourth birthday. Upon leaving school, he took a job working as a butcher's boy, then as a caddy at North Middlesex Golf Club. Then, like many other young men at the time, he was attracted to the British Army as a potentially better way of life, and one where he would at least get two meals a day and a chance to see the world. At five foot three in height, Parr joined the 4th Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment as a professional soldier in 1912, aged 14, but claimed to be 18 years and one month old to meet the minimum age requirement. He was nicknamed Old Parr, probably after Old Tom Parr, who was born in 1482 or 1483 and reputedly died in 1635. And he was an Englishman who was said to have lived for 152 years. He is often referred to as simply Old Parr or Old Tom Parr. Young Parr became an infantry scout with the 4th Middlesex, whose role was to ride ahead of the battalion on the march with a detachment mounted upon bicycles to detect the enemy or points of military note and then return with all possible speed to notify the battalion's commanding officer as to what lay ahead. On the outbreak of the First World War, in early August 1914, the 4th Middlesex was mobilized and was among the first British Army units of the British Expeditionary Force to cross the English Channel to France. And with the Imperial German Army invading Belgium and France at that moment, Parr's unit took up positions near the village of Bettenies, beside the canal running through the town of Mons, approximately eight miles away. On 21st of August 1914, Parr and another cyclist were sent to the village of Oberg, just northeast of Mons and slightly over the border in Belgium, with orders to locate where the Germans were. It is believed that whilst doing this, they encountered an Ulan patrol from the German First Army engaged in the same work, and that Parr remained to hold off the enemy whilst his companion returned to report. It is believed that he was killed in an exchange of rifle fire. Later research into the action where Parr was reported to have lost his life indicated that the action couldn't have happened due to the absence of German troops in the area, and it was thought that Parr was most likely the victim of friendly fire, a sadly not uncommon happening early in the war. The exact circumstances of his death remain unclear, and historical research in 2014 has posited the theory that he may have been killed during the Battle of Mons on 23rd of August, 1914. As the British Army retreated from the area shortly afterwards, Parr's body was left behind, and with the absence of confirmation of his fate, Parr's death was not officially recognized until much later in the conflict. His mother wrote letter after letter to his regiment's headquarters asking about her son, but it was unable to state with certainty what had happened to him. Parr's body was later found to have been buried, probably by the Germans, in a battlefield grave, which was subsequently located by the Imperial War Graves Commission. Today his grave lies in St. 
Symphorian Military Cemetery, just southeast of Mons. The age given on the gravestone is 20. The British government at the time of its manufacture, not knowing that his true age was 17, due to his underage enlistment. His grave faces that of George Edwin Ellison, the last British soldier thought to have been killed during World War I. On the 100th anniversary of Parr's death, a memorial paving stone was laid in the pavement outside his home at 52 Lodge Lane. The unveiling ceremony being attended by about 300 people, including local dignitaries and Parr family members, one of whom read a letter from his mother to the War Office written in October 1914, inquiring about his faith. A memorial standing stone nearby to bear a plaque with further details of Parr's life and death is planned. A plaque has also been placed in the golf club where he worked as a caddy. While Parr is believed to be the first British Army soldier to have been killed in action, he was not the first such British Armed Forces casualty during the war, as on 6 of August 1914, the British cruiser HMS Amphion, built in 1911, hit a German mine and sank, killing about 150 sailors of the Royal Navy. Nor was he the first British soldier to lose his life in the conflict, as several had been killed by friendly fire and accidental shootings after the declaration of war, but before troops were sent overseas, beginning with Corporal Arthur Rawson on 9 August of 1914. Who is the man or the woman in the uniform? The images show the possible story of a love affair between young people from opposite ends of the earth, brought together by war and finally separated by peace. Many old glass photographic plates bearing these pictures, lost for over a century, have surfaced in northern France. They were not meant to be seen by you or me. They capture a moment of intimate, jesting relaxation on a sunny day in a French garden over a hundred years ago, a few miles from the most calamitous of all the battles of the First World War. When looking carefully at the image, it is of a young officer wearing a New Zealand uniform and that distinctive lemon squeezer hat, we Americans refer to them as Smokey the Bear hats, who is saluting the camera. And this is probably in October of 1916. Then if you look at the other two images, they are of him side by side with another New Zealand officer who has a mustache. Comrades in arms, most likely, you'd think. Now, if you look at the fourth picture, it shows a woman in her late 20s or early 30s sitting in an affectionate, almost raunchy for the times, pose on the mustachioed officer's outstretched knee. If you examine the images carefully, You'll see that the officer in the hat and the young woman on the officer's knee are the same person. All four images were taken within a few minutes of one another in the garden of a substantial house 30 miles behind the battlefront of the Somme. The position of the leaves and flowers in the garden and the angle of the shutters on the house behind are identical. Between the shots, the two young people have scrambled to change their clothes. She has put on his first lieutenant's tunic, his New Zealand division lemon squeezer hat, his baggy officer's trousers, his belts, his puttees, and even his spurs. 
She is still wearing her floppy white blouse, stuffed down under the tunic. She has an engagement or wedding ring on her left hand. He is also wearing an officer's tunic, but he has changed into a rough pair of trousers. The first was probably taken in the spring of 1916, when he was still a second lieutenant. The other taken two years later, in the summer of 1918, when he has been promoted to captain and is wearing the ribbon of the Military Cross. Thanks to painstaking detective work by one of the most eminent New Zealand historians of the First World War, Andrew McDonald, the identity of the officer in the mustache has been pinpointed for the independent with a high degree of certainty. The woman's identity is still unknown, but McDonald's researches and our reasonable deductions suggest that she is a local woman with whom the officer had a close friendship, to say the least, between the spring of 1916 and the summer of 1918. The building seen in the background of the garden shots has been identified by a local historian and blogger as the Via de Acacias on the Rue Saint-Denis in Howling Court near Abbeville. Captain Albert Arthur Chapman, born in Tasmania, Australia in March of 1880 and therefore 36 to 38 at the time of the photographs, returned to New Zealand unmarried. Was the woman on his knee a friend, or his fiancée, or the wife or widow of a French soldier? The intimacy and the cheekiness of the images suggest that she was more than just a friend. Since 2009, The Independent has been publishing a series of lost images of British and Commonwealth soldiers of the First World War. They are taken from glass photographic plates which have come to light in attics, or barns, or rubbish skips in the Somme area. The images were, we believe, taken by local amateur photographers. Copies were given or sold to soldiers as souvenirs or to send to their loved ones. The historical value of the plates as a record of the British and Empire armies during the most murderous battle in our history was first grasped by two local men, Bernard Gardine, a photographer, and Dominique Zanardi, proprietor of the Tommy Cafe in Pozieres in the heart of the Somme battlefield. Two more batches have reached Mr. Zanardi and have been processed by Mr. Gardine. A batch of 21 plates found in Hallingcourt, 30 miles east of the battlefields in 1916, includes the extraordinary sequence of the six images we're talking about. It was Mr. Zanardi who first realized that the officer in the hat was also the woman on the knee. He thought he might have come across a, a rare picture of a female officer, but this proved to be impossible because neither the British nor the New Zealand armies had women in military uniform at this period. When shown the images, McDonnell, who is a New Zealand military historian living in London and the author of On My Way to the Somme, New Zealanders and the Bloody Offensive of 1916, and Passchendaele, The Anatomy of a Tragedy, he identified the officer in the mustache from his collar and cap badges as a member of the 7th Southland Mounted Rifles, one of the squadrons in the Otago Mounted Rifles. These were not cavalry, but troops who could fight on foot or horseback. 
In the portrait photograph with other soldiers, he is wearing the collar badges of the New Zealand Pioneer or Maori Battalion, to which he had been transferred. In the image of him sitting backwards on a chair, he has been promoted to captain. In the records of the New Zealand Pioneer Maori Battalion, there were only two officers who meet these criteria. One of these did not reach the rank of captain, leaving Albert Arthur Chapman as the prime candidate, MacDonald said. His service record fits the man in these images like a glove. He was transferred from the Pioneer Battalion to serve with the New Zealand Division, headquarters staff, behind the lines of the Somme in April, May, and June of 1916. He was transferred back to the same Pioneer Battalion when the New Zealand Division entered the battle from 15th September. He was promoted to first lieutenant in October of 1916. He won the Military Cross in June of 1918. The record shows that Captain Chapman was serving in New Zealand Divisional Headquarters in the spring and early summer of 1916, close to Howling Court, where the images were taken. He probably met the woman in the hat at that time. The rest of the story can be pieced together, perhaps not rightly, but imaginatively, from intelligent guesswork. The images in the garden cannot have been taken before October 1916, after Chapman was promoted to first lieutenant. The summer-early-autumn feel of the garden suggests that it might have been that month. The image of Chapman as a captain and wearing the military cross ribbon cannot have been taken before June of 1918. He must have gone back to Hallingcourt, presumably to visit the woman. All the glass plates were found together and were therefore almost certainly taken by the same photographer. We can deduce again rightly or wrongly, therefore, that Chapman knew the woman for around two years. He went back to visit her at least twice, which suggests a deep friendship or an even more intimate relationship. She seems to be a confident, intelligent, rather modern-looking woman for her time. Is the ring on her finger Chapman's engagement ring or her wedding ring? Had her husband died in the mass slaughter of the French army, in 1914-1915, or, less flatteringly, was he away fighting in the Battle of Verdun, which ran from February to November 1916. The New Zealand service records consulted by MacDonald show that Chapman was born in Tasmania in 1880. Before the war, he was a clerk for a shipping company in Dunedin, New Zealand. He volunteered as a trooper or private in October of 1914. He probably served at Gallipoli and was promoted first to sergeant, then to second lieutenant. Chapman returned to New Zealand in October of 1918, just before the war ended. He was unmarried when he left and unmarried when he returned. There was no trace of him marrying before he immigrated to the United States via Canada in 1924. So, what happened to the woman in the hat? Did he jilt her? Did she jilt him? Did her husband return from the war? Maybe, and this again is just speculation, she died in the global flu pandemic of 1918, which killed more than 400,000 people in France alone and took a particularly heavy toll in the war-ravaged North. The population of Hallingcourt 
nearly 2,000 in 1911, had fallen by one-sixth by the end of the war. This would be the ironic novelist's or movie maker's ending to the love story. This story is implied by these images. Our soldier survived four years of the appalling conflict. Perhaps his French civilian sweetheart did not. Does that explain why Captain Chapman, a handsome, decorated war hero at a time when men were scarce, never married? Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.